The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Behind Enemy Lines. I'm your host, Alejandro Suniga from the Michigan Insider, michigan.247sports.com. Behind Enemy Lines is a weekly show during the football season where we take an in-depth look at the Wolverines' upcoming opponent. Last week... J.J. McCarthy and the Wolverines handled business against East Carolina, a comfortable near shutout, not quite, uh, over the Pirates, 30-3. This week, they will welcome the UNLV Rebels to the Big House for a 3.30 p.m. kickoff that will be broadcast nationally on television this time on CBS. Very excited for this week's show. As we're doing every week throughout the year, we'll be checking in with insiders from the Michigan State Beat and from the Ohio State Beat so that you can have the inside scoop as to how things are going with those programs as those rivalry games approach. But first, we're going to take a look at the UNLV Rebels who are breaking in a very transfer portal laden roster with new coaches and a really interesting offense that's going to make the game at the Bakehouse this weekend might not be super close, but it will be at least quite intriguing. Here's my conversation with Matt Neverett. Welcoming in Matt Neverett to the show. Matt calls games locally on television for UNLV and also produces their radio broadcasts. Matt, welcome. Let's dive right in. In week one, UNLV took care of business against an FCS opponent, Bryant. Uh, Game finished 44-14. In a game where I caught some of the highlights and caught some of the storylines, of course, in preparation for this, seemed like a weird one. There was a rain delay indoors uh, mm-hmm. at Allegiant Stadium. Uh, I guess rain, I mean, obviously rain is a bit uncommon in Las Vegas and there were some holes in the roof. Uh, but from a football perspective, right, it was uh, it was a game that UNLV scored on the very first offensive play of the game, uh, built up a pretty comfortable lead. Uh, but this is... It's an exciting time for the program, right? You know, Michigan, the last time they played UNLV, UNLV played at a different football stadium. Uh, Now they're at one of the new, you know, shining jewels of football in the United States, Uh, obviously led by a new head coach in Barry Odom, previously seen at Missouri and then most recently at Arkansas. Uh, So, so Matt, take us into that. I know UNLV is trying to throw attention in a crowded sports landscape in Las Vegas. What has this transition been like? Well, it's been really exciting locally to get a guy in Barry Odom that had had some previous head coaching experience. It's the first time that UNLV has hired a football coach with previous NCAA head football coaching experience since a college football Hall of Famer John Robinson in 1999. So they had gone a different direction for just over 20 years in terms of 
hiring new head coaches. And it, it was a welcome return uh, for a guy that had plenty of experience in, in Barry Odom, was a, a longtime assistant and then head coach at Missouri, spent three seasons at Arkansas as a defensive coordinator and uh, associate head coach there. So he had had plenty of coaching experience, not only at big levels of college football, but in the SEC, the biggest of them all. So it was really interesting to see how a guy like that would try and attack his second head coaching job. And they did it the way that a lot of other teams are nowadays. And that is bringing in a ton of new players, UNLV rostering 110 players this year, which is the biggest roster in school history. Exactly half of them, 55 are, are newcomers to the program. And that's to be expected whenever there's a, a transition to a new coaching staff and a pretty transitional period for the program in general. But a lot of the newcomers that they went out and got, not just JUCO transfers, not just transfers from lower level FC, FCS, FBS programs, but they went out and got some guys. Barry Odom brought a couple of uh, big time players from Arkansas with him, Jalen uh, St. John, the left tackle and starting linebacker Jackson Woodard, who led UNLV in tackles in the opening week win. Uh, a couple of guys, including Xavier Carter, who was a former four-star pr- prospect who transferred from LSU. They're starting to get some guys like Jack Haas, the new starting center from Buffalo. And they also poached Arizona's leading tackler last year in safety, Jackson Turner, who had a big game in week one. So obviously a transitional period all the way around with a lot of newcomers, new faces, mainly on the defensive side of the ball. But I've really, really liked a lot of the messaging and and some of the the foundation that Barry Odom has laid in his first couple of weeks here with, with UNLV. A lot of new faces from a player perspective, but obviously coaching-wise as well. And one that Michigan fans are certainly going to be familiar with by the end of the broadcast is the offensive coordinator, uh, Brennan Marion, uh, who who runs – he's the pioneer of what's called the go-go offense, right? And if you've never heard of it, it, A, that's understandable uh, because it's sort of a a nascent scheme, uh, but B, there's reasons to pay attention to it, right? Uh, and, and UNLV knows this very well uh, when when the offensive coordinator, Brennan Marion, when he was at Howard, uh, his offense uh, helped instigate a, a massive upset. Uh, Howard, they were 45 point underdogs and upset UNLV uh, back a few years ago. What this will look like on the field, it will look a bit bizarre. It, you've got a quarterback in the shotgun. That's not weird. But you have two running backs often lined up kind of just right next to them. Uh, and what that means is it creates a sort of triple threat offense at all times. You've got guys running in multiple directions. It you know, it forces a defense to cover horizontally and vertically. It's gonna make it's gonna create issues uh for, for the Michigan linebackers. It's gonna create issues for for any team uh that UNLV faces this year. But I wonder if you can take us a bit more into what you've seen from that offense. Uh, certainly successful in game one against, you know, a, a, an overmatched opponent in Bryant. Uh, but it seems like this could be an exciting time for UNLV. Yeah, definitely. And you you mentioned it. It is a, a unique look uh, when we asked the new offensive coordinator, Brendan Marion, before the season, if he could kind of summarize it, give us three brief bullet points on what the go-go offense is. The three that he gave us were misdirection, unbalanced formations, as you had brought up, and then vertical shots was the third one. And we really didn't see too many of the vertical shots in week one because the running game was so dominant. I think that's one thing that surprised a lot of folks, surprised me, at least at the onset of the game, was just how much and how well they ran the ball overall. UNLV in the game ran the ball 40 times for 268 yards on the ground. Granted, it was against an FCS opponent, UNLV now 10 
and four against FCS teams since the turn of the century. But it, it was a lot of assignment football on the offensive side. The offensive line, who was made up of three newcomers, really did a good job in camp and in the first week or two of practice before the game of gelling, kind of working together and communicating, which is such a big part of the, the run blocking scheme in the go-go offense. And Doug Brumfield really didn't have his best game. 11 of 18, no touchdowns, just 86 yards uh, and one interception on a tipped ball. So the vertical shots are going to come. And I think against a team like Michigan, we could see Brumfield in this offense try to take some of those shots early. I mean, the 70-yard the rush touchdown on the first play of the game against Bryant wasn't any trick play, wasn't anything crazy down the field. It was just an off-tackle run to the left that uh, Vincent Davis, the pit transfer, broke for a, a score on the opening play of the season. So it wasn't even like we saw a ton of the deep shots vertically on offense from UNLV, uh, like like I would expect to see it, especially early in the game against the top-ranked team in Michigan. Yeah, one thing that I've read about the go-go offense is that they like to go tempo too. Is is that something that uh, that UNLV did against Bryant? Definitely. Yeah, you're going to see a lot of plays uh, in, a, in a short amount of time. Brennan Marion, before the week one game, had mentioned that they wanted to run at least 73 to 75 plays offensively, which is well above average, especially given some of the new clock rules that have cut down on overall game time. But this is a team that jams a lot of plays into a shortened spurt on offense, and they do a really good job of conditioning and uh, and stretching and getting really ready to go from the opening snap with that in mind. Talking here to Matt Neverett. He calls games uh, on television for UNLV and helps to produce their radio broadcasts. Uh, Matt, you were just talking a moment ago about how one of the three pillars, I guess, of this go-go offense is taking deep shots. Uh, and we were talking to uh, Michigan players, Michigan coaches throughout the week. Uh, they all said, you know, looking at the quarterback, Doug Brumfield, he, he's a lefty. He's got a strong arm. Uh, he actually holds uh, the the program a completion percentage record for a for a single season. Uh, you mentioned maybe not quite as accurate in week one, but a guy who has proven it, has some experience, is a returning starter. And when it comes to deep shots, uh, Michigan fans know this name well, is wide receiver Ricky White, right? I know he spoke to the media uh, earlier this week, but he was on that Michigan State team that came to the big house in front of a packed crowd of about 200 people during the COVID season. Uh, and put up, you know, just monster numbers uh, in that upset for the Spartans. Uh, so you've mentioned a few names, uh, you know, Doug Brumfield, obviously the quarterback uh, is going to have the ball in his hands every play. Ricky White, uh, who's played at the big house before, albeit without uh, without fans in attendance. Who are some of the other names uh, on that offense that Michigan fans should be aware of? Well, one name right off the bat that you're going to keep an eye out for, and you're going to see him early and often with the ball in his hands, is Juco transfer Jacob DeJesus, who had a 96-yard touchdown, or not a touchdown, 96-yard kickoff return tackled at the one-yard line in the opening game win. Uh, he also caught four passes for 50 yards and was tripped up just short of the goal line on one of those receptions as well. And as a new undersized slot receiver in this program, they, they found ways to get him the ball mainly around the line of scrimmage on slant routes. And they ran one screen to him in the game. I would expect to see that as a developing part of the offense, but he was a guy that during training camp, he was one of the few that when you, when you ask the coaching staff at any position, who is a guy that's really stood out uh, almost all of them right away, Jacob DeJesus, Jacob DeJesus, they, they love this kid. I mean, he is quick as a bullet. He's got great hands and, and an uncanny ability to stay away from tacklers after the catch. I was really excited from what I saw from him. And like I said, they, they have found ways to get him the ball, both offensively and on special teams. You'll see him returning kicks and punts this weekend. And 
he's been a really welcome addition to the squad for sure in the receiving core. Uh, turning our attention briefly to that defense, uh, I know you mentioned earlier, Matt, that this is a, a unit or a side of the ball that has a lot of new faces on it, as as the entire program does at this point. Uh, I noticed they gave up 400 plus yards to Bryant, and that's not exactly what you'd like to do against an FCS opponent in week one, particularly when you have an offense like Michigan's coming up a week later, uh, it seemed a, a pretty even split, right? The Bryant was able to move the ball on the ground. They were able to move the ball through the air. So I, I guess from your perspective, what should Michigan fans watch out for? Is this just, it's a, it's a gelling team and it's going to take a few weeks for them to come together as a unit. I think I could see both sides of it. And one other area where, they're still trying to get it together. A new defensive coordinator, Mike Shearer, came over with Barry Odom from Arkansas and installed a 3-3-5 defense, which is the first time that UNLV has ever run that scheme. And so it's going to take a little bit of developing and a little bit of gelling, as you had said, uh, to get some of these guys ironed out into their role. A guy like Xavier Carter off the edge, kind of a, a positionless defender, splitting time between defensive end and linebacker. We really didn't see a lot of the LSU transfer in, in week one. I would expect to see him especially more so on the edge in this game against Michigan. But the, the two areas where even the UNLV coaching staff said after the game where they, they really thought that they could have a lot of room for improvement are, number one, tackling. I think every team would tell you that every week that they probably could have tackled better. But especially in week one, a lot of arm tackles, a lot of missed opportunities and some yards after contact for a couple of Bryant running backs, as well as their, their veteran quarterback who, who did a lot of running, Zevi Eckhouse is his name. But they really didn't get a lot of pressure on Zevi Eckhouse. That was one area where... We even said on our own broadcast that that could be improved almost right away is just getting pressure on the quarterback. And again, in the three, three, five scheme, you're going to have to sacrifice some pass coverage if you want to send a fourth or even a fifth pass rusher. But that's going to be an area where they're going to need to turn up the heat is getting pressure on the uh, on the U or Michigan uh, offensive backfield because it was an area where they they bent but they didn't break they were outstanding on third down even better on fourth down against Bryant but they really set up a lot of third and one third and three situations where if they're able to get some more pressure and force some more misses in the passing game instead of third and three we're talking about you know 39 third and 10 which easily can turn into a fourth down in a punting situation right off the bat so tackling and pressure on the quarterback are the two areas where the UNLV coaching staff wants to see improvement in week two well, Matt, UNLV will enter this game as about five touchdown underdogs. Uh, it's, it's what you'd expect, right, for, for a team coming into the big house to face, you know, a, a top two uh, college football team and one that's made the college football playoff in back-to-back -back seasons. Uh, you just mentioned getting pressure on J.J. McCarthy, getting pressure uh, on the Michigan backfield. Any other keys to the game? Anything else that you're going to be looking at in particular as UNLV tries to keep this game close and, you know, potentially put off, pull off the shocker of all shockers uh, at Michigan Stadium this weekend? Yeah, the number two ranking matches the highest ranked team that UNLV has ever played. They took on number two Tennessee in 1996 and got walloped. So here's hoping for not a repeat of that one, at least. But uh, as far as covering the, a big number uh, for, for UNLV from the, from the betting perspective. Uh, I think that they are going to have an opportunity to be sure because of the way that they control the running game and therefore the time of possession and the clock battle in games that we're now seeing are even shorter and shorter uh, by design with the new first down rules and new out of bounds rules. So uh, I think it's, it's going to be a, a lower scoring game than a lot of uh, people may think just because the UNLV rushing attack is kind of how they've led offensively, at least in a shortened sample size 
here early in the season. As far as winning the game outright, they're going to need a couple of things to happen. They're going to need, as we mentioned, pressure on the quarterback. There's going to have to win the, the turnover battle, too. I mean, they're going to have to take the ball away from Michigan and, and keep it out of the hands of J.J. McCarthy and that potent offense. And then just the offensive line for UNLV needing to continue doing what they do, communicate fill in gaps in the passing game and continue to dominate, especially with the pulling guards in the running game. So it's, it's going to take a special game and potentially a, a couple of lucky bounces UNLV's way, but you know, covering the number, I could certainly see it winning the game. They're going to need some help to be sure. Matt Neverett, Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for hopping on and, and taking us uh, behind enemy lines to give us the preview of UNLV as Michigan fans are getting themselves geared up for this game maybe even on, on game day on Saturday, where, where can they follow you? Where can they follow your work? Uh, I'm at Matt Neverett on everything. N-E-V-E-R-E-T-T. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, find me, add me. I'm an easy guy to talk to and find. And that is behind enemy lines previewing UNLV stick around after the break though. We'll be talking Michigan state and Ohio state, both of whom looked a little bit shaky at times in their week one opener. We'll be right back. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our attention now turns to the Michigan State Spartans. Michigan State began its 2023 season with a relatively comfortable, at least by the end of it, victory over Central Michigan last Friday. Uh, This was, as many week one games were, a bit of a sloppy game. Uh, Central Michigan actually led late in the first half, uh, and it seemed like getting into a two-minute drive relaxed Noah Kim, the Michigan State quarterback. Spartans were able to reclaim the lead by the end of the first half. It was still a one-possession game through much of the third quarter, but Michigan State ended up pulling away by the end of the third quarter and then coasted to the win in the fourth. So, Stephen, you were at the game, as you will be for every Michigan State game this year. Let's get started with, I guess, Noah Kim, right? It seemed like, A, he was really struggling with intermediate passes in the first half, B, it didn't seem like his receivers were helping him out much, at least early on. Uh, But by the end of it, he finished with a pretty decent stat line. He hit some very pretty deep balls, quite frankly, and he led a victory in his first start. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I think all your observations are spot on. Um, You know, I, uh, there were, there was booze at Spartan Stadium, you know, late in that first half. And, you know, it's, We'll see where this whole thing goes. Um, I'm, you know, it, we were going to talk every week. I'm not convinced that the discussion is necessarily over at quarterback. Um, I do think there's a clear one-two pecking order here because we didn't see Kate Hauser until like the last, you know, five minutes of the game. But 
I just I don't think we saw enough from Noah Kim to say, all right, book's closed. He's the guy. No questions asked, you know, moving forward. Because that first half, there was some troubling stuff there. And then he hits these two passes to Jerron Glover, who's a receiver that, you know, the outside world really has no idea about, um, you know, unless you follow recruiting. He was just kind of a, a came-from-nowhere guy. Um, hits two passes to him and then gets him down and gets him that touchdown to go ahead before halftime. And that really changed the vibe, you know. And so in an alternate history, if they if he doesn't complete one, you know, the first pass that leads to the second pass, uh, you know, what does that conversation look like at halftime? You're trailing Central Michigan at home seven to three. I'm sure they go into the locker room to booze, you know. Now, knowing what we know now and have seen it all play out, like, yeah, they'd probably stick with Noah Kim into the second half because, again, it does seem – to be a very clear division there. Not it was not uh, any kind of extended audition or, or training camp extension. Like I honestly thought it might be at that position. So um pretty interesting day overall. He finished at eight for ten. Um as you said, I think his deep balls you know look better than some some of the other parts of his game. He got better as the game went on, which I think you appreciate from a quarterback. Um, obviously, you know, you'd rather have them start strong from right out of the gate, but I think people are interested in, in really, as I, you know, just going back, you know, the fact that Caden Hauser didn't get in in a second quarter drive or, you know, late in the first quarter, anything like that, it was very clear. It was not, it was, it was standard operating procedure with the quarterbacks. It was like, here's our starter. Our starter is going to play until our starter is no longer needed. And now here's the backup to clean up the rest. You know, it was not like we need to get a look at this other guy. So that's really the main uh, takeaway, I guess, at that position. We'll see how much, you know, that holds up through these next couple of games. I know last time when we spoke last week, uh, you told me that, listen, when you're playing Central Michigan, it, it no matter what you do against Central Michigan, it's not going to tell you that you're good, right? Because you're expected to dominate Central if if you're Michigan State. Uh, you're, you know, any Big Ten team, pretty much. You, you expect that they would be able to physically uh, and, and game plan wise outclass a MAC program. And I think with Central, what, when I was rewatching that game, uh, it really struck me that they were pretty one dimensional as an offense. Um, so, so I don't know how much you can take away from Michigan State's defensive performance when you consider how much the Chippewas really struggled to pass the ball. Uh, but a couple of things that stood out to me in, in watching Michigan State's offense. Uh, number one is Nathan Carter. Uh, he was the UConn transfer. We talked about, about him a bit last week as a guy who really flashed during fall camp and someone that the Spartans were very excited about. Seemed like he really showed out uh, against Central Michigan, but there were a couple situations. There were two fourth and short plays where the Spartans were stuffed up the middle by Central Michigan. I guess, that, I mean, these are two opposite things here, but they're part of the same package, which is the offensive line and the ground game. How do you evaluate how that performed on, on, on Friday? Yeah, I think it was about sort of what folks expected, you know, in terms of like, I don't think anybody was concerned about running back talent, um, especially with, you know, with everything that we heard about Nathan Carter and boom, right away, his first carry goes for like 31 yards right up the middle. And, you know, he had a huge hole, but there was a burst there and a decisiveness and just the way his lower body moves and everything. It just is very, very powerful runner, but, but quick as well. So, I mean, you could, you watch him run. It's like, wow, that guy's different. You know, you can just tell. So I don't think talent running back talent necessarily. Now I know I'm sure I said last week, I didn't know about maybe a star, you know, when, when you look at the backs, the receivers, all the skill players together, uh, maybe Carter's that, but I, I never thought running back um, was lacking, you know, a, a couple of solid players to get him through, but it was the offensive line. And yeah, they lined up for fourth and one twice. 
they ran two uh, hand. There was two inside run plays out of a, out of shotgun, which has all the fans riled up this week. And because we've seen that before, you know, that quite honestly, they weren't a good short yardage team last year, and it was a lot of that. It was one back shotgun, you know, inside zone or whatever out of out of your out of out of the gun, and people are just saying, you know, why are we taking away the threat of quarterback sneak by lining up under center or just just diversifying the look? Period. So there's a lot of frustration there. Um, I thought the offensive line pass protected very, very well. I thought Noah Kim had all day to throw uh, quite a bit. You know, I, I thought he had a really nice sort of umbrella um, shape there in the pocket for for much of that game, and they rotated quite a few guys in there and got some. Got some second uh, string guys, some some quality experience. So, in that respect, I thought they were good. But they've been pretty solid at that. But as a term, when it comes to just blowing a team off the ball and just running it sort of at will, you know, or something close to that, um, I don't think we saw that necessarily. And yeah, where it gets when it squeezes down into fourth and one and gets tight, you want to you want to be able to flex your muscle and overpower an opponent like that. Now, Central's got a good defense. They've got a lot of guys who've played a lot of football. I think it's nine returning starters, you know, one of the better defenses in the MAC a year ago, I want to say. So, but still, to do it twice is not good. So that's probably still, in terms of the offensive line play, are they going to be good enough to allow Michigan State to do what they need to do to run the ball against Big Ten competition, you know, and above or whatever? Uh, that's still probably the biggest question coming into, into the rest of the season, into week two and beyond. Well, I don't really think that we're going to get the answer in week two to that question. Uh, Michigan State uh, welcomes the Richmond Spiders to town on Saturday. Uh, Richmond just lost in pretty stunning fashion uh, to Morgan State. So, I mean, maybe maybe they were looking ahead uh, to that game in East Lansing. But if you're Michigan State, Stephen, what, what are you looking for in terms of whether it's Noah Kim taking the next step or what needs to be cleaned up? Uh, before what's going to be a really marquee showdown against Washington coming in a couple weeks. I think you want to see, uh, I mean, it's a, it's much like the central game, right? In terms of like, no news is good news. Like, you know, pretty much you can only get red flags out of it, but still that being the case, you know, you want to see a decisive score at the end. Uh, you want to see um, mistakes cleaned up too, I would say as well. Cause I mean, I, I just, even if they go out there and win, 60 to three, that's not going to tell me that they're ready for Washington. I don't think, you know, that we just, we're not going to know until they really square that up and, and kick, kick that ball off against that team. And I'll just say as an, you know, as an aside, Washington, probably maybe even better than I thought they'd be. I was I'm very high on them. They look just outright lethal, but anyway, uh, you know, when I say clean things up, like central's only touchdown drive uh, was aided by back to back face mask penalties so don't do that and you probably shut them out you know don't do stuff like that don't start the way you did as an offense whether it was Noah Kim missing guys or guys like Trey Mosley and Malik Carr dropping balls who are you know if if you had to write a list of who's going to be Noah Kim's most dependable pass catchers this year they would be one and two probably you know uh so and, and they let him down early you know and that's that's a difficult spot for a new quarterback so Make make catches that are there. They were not, you know, some of them, these, these were not contested catches. They just were flat, naked drops. I mean, it was bad. So clean that stuff up. Run the right routes. That was another, you know, one or two times uh, Noah Kim, you know, looked a little worse than he probably is because guys uh, broke routes off or ran them, you know, at a, at a lacking tempo, we'll say, um, things like that. So all the little stuff. And then, uh you know, a lot of what we saw defensively, as you said, yeah, I don't think you can really make it a measuring stick of what they are on defense, but you can still dominate. You know, you can still uh, do, you know, 
just punish them to the best of your ability. And so I think we want to see, you know, people want to see continued growth of uh, the defensive backfield with three second-year players as starters now. The D-line, I think everybody is, feels pretty good about for the most part. The linebackers are a very veteran group. So front seven is pretty solid. But if there could be, you know, a, a splashy player or two from the from the secondary, uh, I think that would, that would um, you know, raise spirits around here a lot, make people a lot more confident. But as so many of the things I said last week apply in terms of it's just it's just not going to be a realistic gauge of of what they're going to see a week from now. Talking to Stephen Brooks, he covers the Michigan State Spartans over at Spartan Tailgate. That's part of our 24-7 sports network. You can find him there or you can follow him on Twitter at Stephen with a PH. It's at Stephen M underscore Brooks. Stephen, I'm sure we'll be talking next week about another victory. Thanks so much for joining us. Our attention now turns to the Ohio State Buckeyes. The Buckeyes beat Indiana 23-3 in a Big Ten game in week one. As I do every week, I have Patrick Murphy, who covers Ohio State over at Bucknuts. Patrick, let's dive right into it, as we always do. It was a, it was a week one game, right? It was weird. It was sloppy at times. Uh, it was one of those where it felt like the, the new college football rules with the time uh, continuing at first downs. It just felt like there weren't many possessions in that game. Uh, and as a result... It was an uncharacteristically low-scoring Ohio State game. Uh, but a Big Ten win is a Big Ten win. Uh, when we talked last week, Kyle McCord hadn't yet been announced as the week one starter. And he started. Uh, he he played the majority of the game as it turned out. Devin Brown really didn't get that many snaps. Uh, I know you're re-watching the game as we're recording this. So, so what are some things you saw, some positives, some negatives uh, from Kyle McCord's first start this year? I would say Kyle McCord was was pretty good, and I think had a few plays gone a different way, uh, the numbers would have looked a, a lot better, and I think Buckeye fans probably would have been a lot happier with, with kind of the result. I mean, McCord statistically, 20 of 33 for 239 yards, did have an interception on a play where trying to make a play on for, fourth down, um, his intended target got tripped up, and he just kind of threw it back across his body, didn't see the defender. but there was also, uh, you know, a, a touchdown pass he had to Marvin Harrison Jr. that got called back because Harrison stepped out of bounds. Um, they, I think if that fourth down play comes off, it, it may be a touchdown. Um, he had a, a quarterback draw play, which was interesting to see because we've uh, we've heard all off season, or or actually we've been told not all off season that uh, he is not the most athletic guy. He did show some athleticism, but clearly showed on that play that running is not his forte is he had a block from, I think it was on the four yard line, had a block and went to the left when it clearly should have gone to the right. So just, just not a situation he's used to being in. So I would say he probably played, you know, if I'm giving it a a letter grade, I'd probably say like B plus there were some typical struggles that you have in in a first real start. He did start a game as a freshman when CJ Stratt was hurt. Um, but his first, you know, time really running the offense, I thought things were called kind of conservatively, only took a couple shots downfield, did have a few nice throws, uh, some throws that I think when he he looks back or even some reads, I think when he looks back where guys were probably open that he didn't see. So I think it'll be a learning experience for him. I think I mentioned it when we talked last week, the offensive line continues to be my biggest question coming out of that. And I'm sure we'll get to that, but obviously had an impact on him at times in terms of, you know, just not even necessarily the time he had to throw, but 
you could tell the clock was ticking a little bit. And I think that's some of the reason he took maybe some of the underneath easy routes instead of maybe looking to throw down field like we've seen from Ohio State offense in the past. Yeah, I think I, I didn't get a, a full chance to watch the game. Uh, it, it always strikes me, you know, when you see the coaches polls every week is that I don't know if they get a chance to watch the rest of college football, given how much they focus on their own games. And it's kind of the same for for us beat reporters, right? It's by the time I'm done watching Michigan, doing the post-game press conferences, writing stories, by the time I get back, I don't have a ton of time to watch games across the Big Ten, across the college, fo- college football landscape. But I, I did try to catch the end of, of the Indiana-Ohio State game, and it struck me that Indiana really did not pass the ball at all. It seemed before the fourth quarter, they just... Uh, they don't look like a, a team, and I think I saw in your own coverage, Patrick, that's going to be competing for a uh, for a Big Ten championship this year. Uh, maybe that's to put it a little bit nicely. But so so my attention really was on the Ohio State offense, uh, and it seemed a couple things. Number one was that that vaunted Ohio State receiving core really didn't get going as much as as you typically see in a Ryan Day offense. Uh, but second was that offensive line. And it it looked like that very much is a work in progress. What did you see from them? It looked like the talents there. Uh, it looks like maybe it's just some teething issues with going into a road game for week one against a big 10 opponent. Yeah. Ryan day called the offense in general, just a mixed bag. And I think that starts with, with the offensive line, um, you know, three new starters, as we touched on last week. They all had some positive moments, but like left tackle Josh Simmons, who was a right tackle at San Diego State last year, clearly tell that there were, you know, even playing a team like Indiana, it was still a step up in competition, right, from from that conference. So he was clearly growing. I think these next two weeks will give him an opportunity. Ohio State plays Youngstown State and Western Kentucky to kind of just get comfortable in playing for Ohio State and playing that left tackle spot. I thought Josh Fry at right tackle played a solid game, wasn't phenomenal but he spent most of his offseason working at left tackle so he's kind of transitioning back to to that position and then Carson Hinsman at center again some good plays but there were definitely some times when he missed some things that, that the center needs to get and that causes direct problem up the middle for either run play or pass play so uh, I certainly see room for growth but it continues to be a question for me this this group doesn't have it's not like they're replacing the, the NFL draft picks who left with like guys that are clearly going to be NFL draft picks. If there's a place that Ohio state has kind of struggled to hit in recent years, it's like consistently on the offensive line and recruiting. They've gotten guys here. There Paris Johnson jr. Was obviously one, um, you know, Dewan Jones was, was kind of a, a diamond in the rough type player. They did have a Harry Miller who had to medically retire a couple of years ago. So they, they, they've done okay recruiting wise, but I think, if, if there's a reason that Ohio State's offense doesn't ever kind of get going this year, it could be that the offensive line, when I say kind of get going, I mean by the standard that Ohio, the high standard Ohio State's kind of set for itself. Um, it could be just because this offensive line simply isn't good enough. It may not be a surprise if at some point during this year, if the tackles aren't playing well or one of the tackles aren't playing well, they go to a true freshman, Luke Montgomery, who really, really impressed in fall camp, uh, really the whole offseason he got in some as kind of a, an additional, you know, big tight end extra offensive lineman in that Indiana game. So it's certainly going to be something I think you and I are probably going to talk about each week, unless things really come together here. 
but um, you know, it's, it's definitely a, a work in progress with that group. And, and we'll see if the talent is enough to get Ohio state where they want to go. Well, a work in progress is one thing, but at the end of the day, one and O is one and O and you can't be better than that after, after a single game. Uh, Ohio state and, and you, Patrick, uh, turning your attention now to a week two game against Youngtown, Youngstown state uh, a bit of a, it's not really a homecoming. Cause I know he just retired, but, you know, Jim Trestle, of course, is is the big name between Ohio State and Youngstown State. But on the football side of things, uh, what do you want to see from the Buckeyes? What are Ohio State fans going to be clamoring for uh, in what really should be a tune-up game uh, at, at the Horseshoe? You think you just want to see things be cleaner, um, especially on the offensive side of the ball. The defense, I thought, you, know, you mentioned Indiana didn't throw very much last week, but they did come out in this option offense, which the Buckeyes didn't expect. We talked to a couple guys after the game. So they made positive, you know, the adjustments on the sideline were able to hold Indiana to 153 yards. So I don't think you're going to see much better from this defense until, you know, maybe that Notre Dameian down the road, or at least they shouldn't be really tested in, in this one. But offensively, yeah, I think you just want it to be cleaner. I think you probably will, if you're an Ohio State fan, want to see a little bit more of Devin Brown just to kind of see what he gives this offense, the, the other quarterback that was in the competition. But you want Kyle McCord to come out and, and maybe take some of those shots downfield because he certainly has the arm. You'd like to see the offensive line protect. Obviously, you need to get Emeka Buka and Marvin Harrison more involved than they were with just, I think it was five total catches, if that. Um, looking at the numbers here. Yeah, five catches, 35 yards. Uh, that's, a, that's a Michigan Harrison- line for wide receivers. Right. Marvin Harrison was targeted eight times. Igbuka targeted four. It just wasn't happening for them. You, you'd want to see them get going, right? Against a Youngstown State, both guys should should have good days, uh, regardless of who the quarterback is in out there. So I think just having it be, you know, just look a little bit more improved. I don't know if Ohio State fans will come out of that game feeling much better, even if it does, just because of the opponent. But I think that from a team perspective, you'd want to build confidence after a bit of a I don't want to say shaky start, but just inconsistent in that first Big Ten game. We're talking to Patrick Murphy from Bucknuts. Uh, you can follow Patrick for more Ohio State coverage this weekend throughout the season uh, over uh, at, at 24-7 Sports uh, on Bucknuts and on Twitter at underscore Pat underscore Murphy. Patrick, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this week's edition of Behind Enemy Lines. If you are looking for a ton more preview content, a ton more stories, podcasts, videos from Michigan football availability, previews of the UNLV game, basically anything you want about the Michigan football team, you can find it over at the Michigan Insider. That's michigan.247sports.com. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. See you at the big house. New CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus.